Good morning, church family. How are we doing today? Good? See if I can't fix that. All right. Um, My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors, if we've not yet had a chance to meet. Really thankful to have this opportunity to open God's Word and continue uh, in our sermon series through the book of Hebrews called The Sermon That God Wrote. Uh, We have been in the book of Hebrews for over a year, and we're down to the last handful of messages. And the author of Hebrews is kind of going like a machine gun, just One instruction after another, one closing thought after another, a little reminder, a little encouragement. Hey, don't forget. Hey, don't forget. Let me give you one more little instruction. And so we are tackling just one verse today, and it's uh, verse 4 of chapter 13. And let me just say right here from the outset, we like going through books of the Bible verse by verse, line by line, because it makes us have to deal with and wrestle with topics and subjects that we might not otherwise wrestle with. And so today is a good example of that. There are other things that I might decide to preach on other than uh, a verse that talks about God judging the sexually immoral and adulterous. Uh, There are other things I can just be honest, might be just easier topics to cover and might be happier for you uh, to hear about. But we really value the whole counsel of God's word. And so we'd go. We go line by line, verse by verse, word by word, uh, for the most part through books of the Bible. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. I also want to give a little bit of a heads up. Some of you have uh, children with you here in the service today, uh, younger folks, uh, older kids, younger teenagers, men and women. I, I'm totally fine with you having them in. I, my conviction, my, my, let me say my promise to you, I'm not going to be crass, not going to be crude, but I will be frank. And so I just hope you're prepared for some interesting conversations this afternoon over the Seahawks game, moms and dads. So with that forewarning in place, what I'd like to do is, as always, I'd like to... By the way, we're doing money next week, so if it doesn't get spicy enough in here today, come back next week, we'll do money. Uh, But let me do this. Let me read this verse. I'll pray. We'll ask God to do his work in our hearts and in our lives today. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father God, whenever we gather together like this, I always want to start by just thanking you for giving us your word. God, you and your grace gave us your word that we might not forget who you are and what you have done for us in Christ Jesus and what you've commanded for us as we seek to live our lives to honor you. So we thank you for your word. And God, as always, I pray for myself, would you help me to teach your truth um, accurately, passionately, joyfully, and with a heart of love and grace? And God, I just ask, especially today, As we dive into a sensitive topic for many, uh, I pray, God, that you would give me just an extra measure of your grace as I teach this. God, for all of my friends who are here today, I pray that you would give us all soft and teachable hearts, that we would not seek to resist what it is you've taught us, but we would lower our defenses. We'd seek to see things uh, how you've instructed us, how you've taught us. And God, for all of these things, would we be mindful of Jesus, the one who lived a perfect life, died in our place, and rose again to give us new life and right relationship with the Father. We ask your grace over this time. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. You know, when we read an ancient letter, this letter was written close to 2,000 years ago, 
and it was written to a group of Christians, very likely in Rome. So we're, we're separated by continents. We're separated by millennia. Uh, I want to make sure that we have the right mindset when we get to this letter. And so as we dive into this subject, I want to just set the stage for you and describe to you a little bit of what the ancient world, in particular Rome, their attitude towards sex, because it could be a little foreign to us. It's a different culture, a different time. So I want to make sure that we're thinking accurately, okay? So let me just describe this to you. In the ancient world, there existed a range of attitudes towards sexuality, But in general, those who lived in the more rural areas had a conservative attitude towards sexuality, and those who lived in the cities and the metropolitan area had a more liberal or progressive attitude towards sexuality. I mean, I probably lost some of you already. Uh, It was not shocking or scandalous for both men and women to have multiple sex partners. In fact, men in particular were just assumed to not be monogamous and to probably move from partner to partner at least a handful of times. For those who were married, marriage was viewed more of a social contract. It was for things like finances and property rights and inheritance. But, but marriage wasn't the only or exclusive place where uh, sex was, was enjoyed or, or lived out. There were many alternative sexual expressions. They were not only tolerated, but encouraged. Homosexuality, bisexuality, even orgies were just commonplace. There were places where men could go to watch women take off their clothes. I mean, again, we're just trying to wrap our minds around this. In exchange for money, brothels, bathhouses, massage parlors, speakeasies, and bikini coffee stands were not difficult to find. Okay, I put that one in there. People were even known to have experimented with changing genders. This was not uh, unheard of or uncommon. One emperor lived for a period of time as a woman in the court of a neighboring country, a neighboring king. And and, and a little bit after the time of Jesus, the time that the New Testament was written, one emperor actually wrote a letter out to any physician in the empire offering them a great uh, sum of money if they could give him female genitalia instead of male genitalia. The general ethos was that sex was to be expressed and enjoyed in any way that one desired. A very liberal, very progressive attitude towards sexuality. But it wasn't all fun and games. Uh, sometimes political or cultural leaders would get embroiled in scandals about sex and lose their position and cause political upheaval. Again, just try to wrap your mind around this, folks. There were many versions of exploitative sex, including sex slavery, prostitution, forced prostitution, and uh, something which you may be less familiar with called pederasty, in which older men would keep younger boys essentially as uh, a sex slave. There was rape, as I mentioned, prostitution. And, and get this, sometimes women were judged by their appearances instead of by their intellect or accomplishments. It's just mind-blowing, again, right? In case you're not tracking with me, I'm being sarcastic, okay? We have coffee available in the lobby. I'll help you <laughs> track with me. Listen, I need you to understand that Solomon said there's really nothing new under the sun, The world in which we find ourselves, where there are all sorts of public conversations about sex, sexuality, gender, marriage, uh, we've been there before as humanity. We've we've seen these things before. We haven't seen um, maybe the certain spin on it, particularly with the advent of the internet and computers and smartphones. The um, access to sexually graphic material that we have now is definitely a little bit different. But it's nothing new under the sun, friends. One Bible uh, Bible scholar named N.T. Wright puts it this way, The pagan world of the first century was every bit as sexually promiscuous as the Western world of the 21st century. 
And Christians are called today, as they were then, to stand out, to be deeply countercultural at this point. This quote reminds me of a conversation I had one time. Uh, I used to serve at a church down in Tacoma, and one of our music leaders came to me and said, hey, Pastor Aaron, I just want to talk to you because I have a friend, he's not a Christian, and we've been meeting together and just talking about things recently, and I feel like I kind of have, you know, reached the end of my knowledge. I feel like he really could benefit from meeting with a pastor and talking with a pastor. Would you be willing to meet with my friend? And I said, absolutely. Always, always happy to meet with somebody who's questioning Jesus, the Bible. I'd love to meet with them. I had no, no other context. That was it. That was the extent of the conversation. I met with this gentleman at a coffee shop. We exchanged pleasantries for literally about a minute. Oh, hey, how do you know Ryan? Oh, I met him, this, that. And then we sat down with our coffee and I said, hey, how can I help you? You know, Ryan said you had some questions. How can, I, how can I serve you? How can I help you? And he goes, yeah, I guess what I'm just wondering is, why do Christians hate gay people so much? Oh, okay. I didn't know that that was the conversation starting point that we were going to go from. And so what I did is I spent a while just explaining to him, hey, let, let me just back out a little bit. Because there's all sorts of other things that I think we need to talk about before we start talking about the subject of, of marriage and sexuality. And, and so even though we're, we're covering one verse today, I want to use that verse to help us paint a picture, a totality, a, a biblical picture of what God says about gender and marriage and sex and sexuality so that we can all really come to this passage and understand what specifically is being said here because there are many competing voices, especially in our culture, in our day and age, of how we're to think about sex. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to have an overarching view of marriage and sexuality. And let me just say this. Here's the big idea. This is is the the, the main thing I hope to uh, show you today is this, that sex is a complex and potent gift from God that is a picture of the gospel itself. It can be a great joy when stewarded God's way, but it can be greatly destructive when used wrongly. Say that one more time. Sex is a complex and potent gift from God that is a picture of the gospel itself, and it can be a great joy when stewarded God's way, and it can be of great destruction when used wrongly. And so as we go, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the joy of sex. We're going to look at the sorrow of sin, the tragedy of sin, and we're going to see the hope of redemption. So that's what we're going to look at today. Let's start, with, let's start with the joy of sex. And it really starts all the way back in the very earliest pages of the Bible, Genesis uh, chapter 1, when God creates the man and the woman. God creates male and female. If you read through the account of Genesis, there's this beautiful symmetry and balance and rhythm to it. You guys notice that? It says he made the day and he made the night. And he made the sun, and he made the moon. He made the dry land, and he made the water. And he made the waters above and the seas below. And he made the animals that walk and the animals that crawl and the animals that fly and the animals that swim. There's this great duality, this great uh, 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 symmetry in God's creation. And it all culminates with the creation of the man and the woman. God created mankind, he says, in his image and likeness. That's different than anything else in creation. The the birds are not in his image and likeness. The sun and the moon are not in his image and likeness. Mankind uniquely is male and female. So men, you alone are not the full image of God. Women, you alone are not the full image of God. But together, male and female, we are a picture of, a reflection of what God is like. 
but it takes both halves. It takes symmetry. It takes that balance for us to express that full picture. It's, it's so wonderful that in the, in the scriptures, we go through oh, everything that God created at the end of each day. It was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. Then we get to man and woman. And what does God say? Very good. That mankind, male and female together, are the peak and the pinnacle of God's creation, and we are his prized possession among everything that he made. It's not just that God created man and woman, he created marriage. He himself instituted marriage. If you read in Genesis 2, 24 through 25, God says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It actually goes on descriptively to tell us that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well, side note, the first sermon that I ever, ever preached in my entire life was on those two verses. And I was seven years old. And my sister had received a big dollhouse for Christmas and she had Barbie and she had Ken and she was about to start moving all the dolls into the dollhouse and me being the good Christian church kid that I was, said, well, they can't move in together until they got married so I need to perform a wedding ceremony and so at seven years old, I preached a sermon on these two verses and there is video evidence of it somewhere on a VHS tape in my parents' house that I probably buried or threw away. God himself institutes marriage. He, he brings the man and the woman together and he says the two shall become one flesh. What's interesting about that phrase, one flesh, is that the word flesh, yes, yes, there is definitely an, uh, an allusion to the joining together of the bodies. That's definitely part of it. Uh, again, not to be graphic, but it's pretty obvious that the parts fit and the thing just works. That's how it happens. But in the Bible, the word flesh is also used for more than just the body. It's used for really your whole life. And so when it comes to what a definition of what marriage is, the best definition, the best working definition that I've used is this. It's a covenantal whole life union between a man and a woman. Covenantal whole life union between a man and a woman. Covenantal meaning committed, sacrificial, not a, a contract. Contracts are defensive, aren't they? I'll do my part if you do your part. No, a covenant says, I'm just going to give and I'm focused on you and I'm focused on the relationship. And a whole life union, one flesh, yes, it means physically united, but it also means emotionally united and spiritually united and financially united and all the other things that it means to be uh, an individual. Marriage is a picture of these two things, these two halves coming together to not lose their individuality, but create something that is remarkably unified. That's what marriage is. Now, marriage is for, here's what marriage is for, three purposes. First of all, companionship or, or partnership. God creates the man first, and then he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. And so he takes a portion of the side of the man, and he fashions it into the woman and brings, brings the, the woman to the man. God himself said it's not good to be alone. Created for companionship and that partnership. The second purpose for marriage is enjoyment. You actually see right after God brings the woman to Adam, what does Adam do? He writes a love song. He is, he's having a great day. God creates this woman perfectly suited for him. Uh, they're in a garden. They're hanging out. They're all alone. All of you parents are like, man, that does sound awesome, right? They're, they're completely naked. And Adam just bursts into song. One of the purposes of marriage is enjoyment, to, to enjoy one another. Adam is delighted. And the third purpose for marriage is for childbearing. 
that the marriage relationship is uniquely suited not only for the creation of new life, but for the raising of that life together. God himself gives the instruction. He says, be fruitful and multiply. In the vernacular, that means, hey, go have lots of kids. Fill the earth. Want to see lots of little images of God running around over all the planet, taking care of things, stewarding creation. That's what marriage is for. And I, I want to I say that I said that because marriage is for the purpose of child rearing. Sometimes um, critics of what, you know, a biblical view of marriage will say, well, if you can't have kids, is it really a legitimate marriage? Especially in those heartbreaking cases of, say, infertility. Yes, it still is a marriage because it's a covenantal whole life union between a man and a woman. Even if one of the expressions of marriage is, is hindered, that, that purpose of marriage, of child rearing, it's still a legitimate marriage. You know, it's interesting. When we, when we see in our verse here, it says, let the marriage bed be held in honor. Do you know what the word bed is in the Greek? It's koite. It's where we get our word coitus. So the word bed in the Greek has sexual connotations to it. Very similar to even in English, we would say, oh yeah, they went to bed together. We don't mean that they were, you know, playing video games, right? We're, we're, we're talking about a euphemism for something else. So, so the idea of marriage and sex are intertwined. You can't separate those two apart from each other if you're looking through a biblical framework. The third thing I want you to understand about sex is this. It's a gift to be celebrated, Marriage is a gift to be celebrated. Why do I have to say that? Because we in the church have not always done a very good job of reminding people that sex is actually a good thing that God himself thought of. I was reading, uh, as part of my study this week, I was reading uh, a man named St. Augustine, a, a brilliant early church father. He was an African bishop. He lived in the, the 300s or so. And he, in his early life, was quite sexually promiscuous. And so when he came to faith in Jesus, I mean, he wrote some brilliant things, some amazing things. He quite literally changed the direction of Western civilization with his writings. But, oh my goodness, did he ever swing and miss when it came to sexuality. Because he had all of this, all of this, baggage from his, his past life. And then before he became a Christian, he was part of kind of a cult group for a while. And they had some really weird ideas. So when he became a, a Christian, he, he didn't really think biblically about the idea of marriage and sexuality. And that's, that's 1,700 years ago. How many of you have ever heard Christians today talk about sex like it's something that's wrong and bad and shameful and dirty, so save it for that one you get married to, right? Not a biblical picture of sexuality. You know, there are actually entire books of the Bible that are dedicated to celebrating the gift of sexuality. Have you ever read the book of Song of Solomon? Jewish men were not allowed to read that book until they were 30 years old. <laughs> and and you, you start reading through the book of Song of Solomon and there's certain words and they like translate certain body parts. It's like navel or torso. And then you start looking into the Hebrew language. Like, I don't think that that's what they're actually talking about. And you're like, oh my goodness, this is scandalous. And did you notice there's no mention of children in the book of Song of Solomon at all. It's just a celebration of the joy of a, of a married man and woman enjoying one another in all ways, emotionally, spiritually, and yes, physically. Tim Keller, an author and a pastor who I'll actually quote from a few times, he wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage. I highly recommend it. I've actually linked to it up on the website if you've not read it. Uh, it's one of my absolute favorite books on the subject of marriage and sex. But this is what he says. He says, Biblical Christianity may be the most body-positive religion in all the world. 
It teaches that God made matter and our physical bodies and saw that it was all good. It says that in Jesus Christ, God himself actually took on a human body, which he still has in glorified form. And that someday he is going to give us all perfect resurrected bodies. It, biblical Christianity, says that God created sexuality and gave a woman and man to each other in the beginning. The Bible contains great love poetry that celebrates sexual passion and pleasure. If anyone says that sex is bad or dirty in itself, we have the entire Bible to contradict him. Not good. <laughs> we, we don't need to be ashamed or afraid of this gift that God has given. We need to celebrate it. And we in the church ought to have that as a starting point. However, number four, sex is a potent gift to be stewarded wisely. It is a good gift, but it's a potent one. It has power for great good. It has power for great harm. Uh, there's an illustration actually in the Bible uh, when Solomon in the Proverbs is, is speaking to his son when he's talking about, to his son about how he's going to use his sexuality. He says, can a man put fire in his lap and not be burned? Like, I, I love fire, okay? I'm not a pyromaniac, but I love fire. I, I have my happy place, I call it the trifecta. The barbecue grill is going. I've got a cigar going. And the fire pit is going. I am just happy as a clam right there. Actually, on the 4th of July this last year, I found if you add fireworks to it, a fourth thing that's on fire, you can even be happier, okay? I love fire in all those places. But do you know where I don't like fire? On my living room couch, right? I don't like fire uh, on my countertop. I love fire in the stove. I definitely love cooking and making food, but I don't want fire on the countertop. Fire is a great thing. It's an amazing thing when used properly. It's actually an insurance term if you look into it. Friendly fire versus unfriendly fire. Fire in the fireplace, good. Fire in your couch, less than good, right? And sex is very much the same way. It's this beautiful, potent, complex gift that God gave, and it's meant to be utilized and stewarded in the proper context. I don't have to speculate. I know that almost everyone in this room has experienced some sort of hurt at one level or another due to the mishandling of God's good give, gift of sex. Whether that's you were cheated on by someone, whether that's your parents had a, a dysfunctional sexual relationship and you um, experienced missing one of your parents because of divorce. Some of you were sexually abused, touched in inappropriate ways that you should not have been touched. Whatever it might be, God has, God has given the gift of sexuality to be used in the context of marriage. And when it's moved out of that context, when the fire gets out of the fireplace, well, then we get burned, don't we? So we don't want to say that sex is a bad thing. We want to say it's a good gift to be stewarded wisely. Think about this. Not only is it pleasurable, right? It's not just the pleasure of, of that gift, but I just... Sometimes I think about it, it's just mind-blowing to me that through the most intensely pleasurable human act, new human beings are made. Like, does that blow anybody else's mind? Like, just think about that for a second. God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man and the woman. God did all, and then he entrusted, he, he handed off this responsibility of creating new people to us. There are image bearers of God created with unbelievable dignity, value, and worth because two people came together in this, 
intensely pleasurable act. Just, just think about that for a minute. Let the gravity, the weight of that responsibility settle over you. Yeah, I know with contraceptives and uh, more progressive attitudes towards sex, we've, we've kind of diminished it to look at it as almost purely recreational. But God says there's a sacredness to sex. It's a holy thing. And it includes the responsibility of perpetuating the human race. That's just weighty to me. It's a potent gift, complex gift. And number five, I want you to see in the joy of sex that marriage and sex are signposts that point to the gospel. They're signposts that point to the gospel. Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. I've read it at, I've read it at virtually every single wedding I perform. I read it at your guys' wedding when I did your ceremony. It's, it's marriage is a picture of the gospel. The apostle Paul quotes from Genesis. He says, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And then the apostle Paul says, and I, I'm saying this is a great profound mystery, and it refers to Christ and the church. That every marriage, every time that a man and a woman come together and unite in marriage, that it's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of Jesus being united to his people that we collectively, the church, are referred to as the bride of Christ. When Jesus returns at the end of of history, it's called the great wedding feast or the great marriage supper of the lamb. that, That all of human history is actually wrapped up in this picture of a wedding. And if you cannot separate marriage from sex from one another, then sex itself serves as a signpost to the gospel. I know that might sound stark or or shocking to a few of you, but I need you to understand that this picture of the joy and the pleasure that comes from being united together is a signpost that points us to the joy and the pleasure that we have of being ultimately united with God. I'll quote from Tim Keller again. He says this, Sex is glorious. We would know that even if we didn't have the Bible. Sex leads us to words of adoration. It literally evokes shouts of joy and praise. And through the Bible, we know why this is true. John 17 tells us that from all eternity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been adoring and glorifying each other, living in high devotion to each other, pouring love and joy into one another's hearts continually. It is a reflection of the joyous, self-giving, and pleasure of love within the very life of the triune God. Sex is glorious not only because it reflects the joy of the Trinity, but also because it points to the eternal delight of the soul that we will have in heaven, in our loving relationships with God and with one another. Romans 7 and following tells us that the best marriages are pointers to the deep, infinitely fulfilling, and final union we will have with Christ in love. No wonder, as some have said, that sex between a man and woman can be a sort of embodied, out-of-body experience. It's the most ecstatic, breathtaking, daring, scarcely-to-be-imagined look at the glory that is our future. Friends, can we just acknowledge the joy and the goodness of the gift of God that he's given to us in sex? Can I get an amen from any of my married folk here today? We need to start. The starting place is that this is a good thing. May it never be said about Sound City that we didn't celebrate and champion and and delight in the good gift that God has given to us, sexuality and marriage. However, as I mentioned a moment ago, I think many of us have also experienced the heartbreak 
When you read the, those beginning chapters of the Bible, you see that God set this up. He created the man and the woman. He set up marriage. He gave them the gift of sex. But then in chapter three, we haven't even gotten three chapters into the Bible. Adam and Eve, our first parents, they rebel against God. They say, we don't want to live life on your terms. We want to live life on our own terms. We want to take matters into our own hands and we want to be in charge. And so they, they take of the forbidden fruit, they eat of it, they rebel against God, and then the whole rest of the book of Genesis, Genesis in particular is a story of just heartbreak after heartbreak after tragedy after tragedy of people veering away from God's path, and it includes the way in which sexual sin brings tragedy, heartbreak, death. You know, sometimes critics of the Bible or people who are skeptical of, of you know, biblical Christianity, they'll say, well, I, you know, why are Christians so hung up about marriage being between just, you know, one man and one woman? You read the Bible, you got people like Abraham had multiple wives. And I'm like, I'm like, bro, you just failed how to read a book 101. Because if you keep reading, you see that those two wives, like that situation didn't go well, right? The author of Genesis, Moses, makes it quite clear that, yeah, Moses, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, Abraham took a second wife, took a second lover, but that son Ishmael and his son Isaac, and there was enmity. And you know what? They're still fighting in the Middle East to this day because of that stupid decision he made 4,000 years ago. Pay attention. <laughs> Pay attention. It's not good. It's not like it's celebrated or championed. It's just told that that's what happened, and then you can see the devastating effects. This fall, the rebellion of Adam and Eve, it affects everything, it affects everyone, and nobody is immune, and it starts in our desires, and our desires become disordered. Disordered desires, it's, it's, it's instead of wanting what God wants, instead of desiring what's actually best for us, instead of longing for how we were created, our, our desires turn selfish, our desires turn sinful, and, and we become disordered. We know this most clearly in, in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount. He, his most famous sermon, he, he says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. What's that from, Sound City? Ten Commandments. Thank you. It's not a trick question. Thank you, Tom. Good job. The Ten Commandments. You've heard it said. It's one of those top ten things. Like, don't commit adultery. What does Jesus do? He says, but I tell you, if anyone looks at another with lustful intent in his heart, he's already committed adultery. Sometimes people have this misunderstanding in the Old Testament. The bar was very high, and God was very grumpy, and God was very cranky. And then Jesus showed up, and he just lowered the bar, and everybody gets to come in because it's so happy and wonderful, and God grades on the curve. Yes, Jesus just ratcheted up the bar. He said, don't just, don't commit adultery. Don't ever lust after someone else, because if you've lusted after them, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Does that sound like lowering the bar to you? You and I might be able to talk like, have you ever committed adultery? No, I've never committed adultery. I've never committed adultery. Sweet, we passed. Wait, have you ever lusted? Oh, no. Our desires become out of line with what God wants for us. There's a, a biblical commentator, R.K. Harrison, commenting on this passage. He says, by this teaching, Jesus demonstrates that under the new covenant, motivation is considered just as seriously as the mechanical act of breaking or keeping a particular law. The heart's most important. The desire is most important. The motivation of a believer should always be of the purest kind, enabling obedience to God's will freely from the heart and not just because the law makes certain demands. Why do you obey? Why do you do what's right? Is it just because you're afraid of getting in trouble or is it because you actually desire what God desires? That's what he's saying. Actually, when I think about this idea of disordered desires, 
it always calls to mind for me a quote from C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, where in his book, Mere Christianity, he says, uh, you know, imagine that you came to a country where you could fill a theater just by wheeling out a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see just before the lights went out that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? And he's ultimately talking about the Christian virtues of chastity and fidelity, but he's saying, you know, you fill a room for somebody to come and take their clothes off, you'd think they were starving to death for sex, but in our culture, we're gluttons. Actually, interesting thought. I don't think this analogy works as well anymore because I don't know about your Facebook feed, but I cannot scroll through Facebook without seeing 342 tasty food preparation videos these days. And I think, I think there's a whole other sermon there on that, but that's a different subject for a different week. Friends, our desires become disordered. They can become disordered in all sorts of different ways. And we have no place to stand and judge and say, well, my disordered desires aren't as bad as your disordered desires. When it comes to our sexuality, I think we are all in some way, shape, or form broken. And not one of us has a place to stand up and look down in judgment at another person. Yes, our disorder may be a a different flavor or a different kind, but at the end of the day, we all fall short of God's standard. Those disordered desires then lead to destructive actions. It all starts in the heart and then flows out into our actions. The author of Hebrews pointed out two areas in 13.4. He pointed out two areas. He pointed out adultery and then sexual immorality. Adultery is simple and easy to define. It means a married person being sexually intimate with someone who's not their spouse. It's very easy to define. If you're married and you're with someone who is not that person that you're married to, It's adultery. The word sexual immorality in the Greek is porneia. That's where we get our word porn or pornography from. And it's a much more vague and general sort of a term. It really is an umbrella or kind of a catch-all term. In older translations of the Bible, they wouldn't call it sexual immorality. They called it fornication. I actually think we ought to bring that word back into use because it carries a little bit of a surprise factor. Fornicating. Just, I don't know, sounds old-fashioned and kind of intense. But it can refer to all sorts of uh, behavior, activity that is outside of God's safe, wise, loving plan for human sexuality. And it can include things as relatively tame as, you know, theoretically tame, according to our culture, as premarital sex or pornography, looking at sexually explicit images, all the way up to rather intense sounding things like incest or bestiality. That term is used in all sorts of contexts. Friends, the, um, I didn't want to bore you with a bunch of statistics, but they're not good. One that I read this week is that in the United States of America, 90% of people who get married will have already had sex most likely multiple, multiple times, multiple partners before they ever get married. And in the church, it's not much better. Uh, Non-Christian, non-religious organizations now are starting to treat uh, pornography as a public health crisis because we are now having relationships budding between teenagers 
where the boys in particular, pornography is not just a male issue, it's male and female, but in particular, stereotypically, you see more boys addicted to pornography before they've ever kissed a girl. What once was only um, accessible by kings and emperors and people of power, like that kind of a a harem, that kind of a, uh, they could collect, you know, sexual partners from all over the world for themselves, well, it's now accessible to anybody that has an internet connection and a smartphone. And the statistics inside the church are really not encouraging. Uh, If you're here today and you're not a Christian, um, I'm going to speak to those who are Christians right now. And you get to listen in a little bit of a family meeting. Friends, the statistics are awful. And I know some of you are vexed and you're upset and you're frustrated because you look at our world and you see all sorts of sexual sin, sexual perversion. You think, oh man, things are just going to hell in a handbasket. But we have absolutely no right to speak into those things, to try to remove the speck from somebody else's eye when we have a massive plank in our own eye. Statistically speaking, over half of the men in this room have looked at pornography within the last few weeks. Statistically speaking, I'm not pointing fingers, I'm not asking you to raise your hand, I'm just saying, it's not good. Statistically speaking, a large percentage of the weddings that myself and the other pastors are going to perform are going to be between people who engage in sexual relations before the day of their marriage. We don't have a, a very good track record on these things. The Bible actually refers to it. Again, I'm speaking to you Christians. The Bible refers to our sexual sin, but actually really our sin of all types, as spiritual adultery. That our sin against God breaks his heart the way that a husband or a wife's heart is broken when a spouse is unfaithful. I could give you literally dozens, maybe even hundreds of examples. I'll give you one. In Hosea 4.12, God is speaking harshly to his people. He says, A spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. It's not a Bible verse you see, you know, at the top of people's encouraging verse of the day websites, right? You don't give that to somebody on a mouse pad for their birthday, right? This is an intense verse. Playing the whore, playing the harlot, that our sin breaks God's heart like adultery breaks a marriage covenant. And I know some of you are thinking, like, listen, Aaron, you're so intense. Oh my God, calm down. If it's between two consenting adults, what, what, what harm could there possibly be? Well, if we're to believe that mankind is created in the image and likeness of God, and if we're to believe that God not only has a right to dictate how we operate, but, but also knows what's best for us, he knows what's best for us, then we can confidently say that every act of sexual immorality is a defacing of God's property is a defacing of the image and likeness of God. And even though there may not be immediate ramifications, there are spiritual ramifications. And a little part of the image of God is defaced and chipped away and broken and marred every time we engage in sexual sin. What's more is every act of sexual immorality is an agreement with that first lie that the serpent said all the way back in Genesis 3, that God's love isn't enough for us. Every time we engage in sexual immorality, we're saying, God, 
I don't really believe that you love me. I don't really believe that you'll provide for me. I don't really believe that your way is best. And so I'm going to take what I need to take. I'm going to get what I need to get so that I can feel some sense of satisfaction or wholeness or love. And I want to just say to you guys, I, I don't stand before you today as some sort of perfect pastor showing you the way and pointing my finger at all of you, you know, sinners who've broken God's ways. There's only one who's done it perfectly. His name is Jesus. And last I checked, I'm not him. My, uh, I was raised in a Christian home. My parents got saved when I was young. I went to Christian school. I, I genuinely really loved Jesus, was involved in like leading music when I was in high school. I would go early on Tuesday mornings to my private uh, Christian school and I would lead a prayer meeting on Tuesday mornings. Like what kind of a lunatic teenager does that? And uh, you know, loving Jesus, helping serving in the church, leading a prayer meeting. But then when I was about 13 or 14 years old, uh, my dad brought home this thing called a computer. And there was this thing called the internet. And we had no idea what that was. And you guys remember the internet in the early days? Like you'd plug it in, you'd turn it on, it'd make that awful sound like a duck choking on a kazoo. And you're like, wow, this is, I can look things up and I can, check, I can check sports scores and I can look up, you know, cheat codes for my Super Nintendo games or whatever I was doing at 14 years old. And then one friend came over and said, hey, you know what else you can look up? And that sent me into a decade of regular, habitual, ongoing, and addictive pornography use. And I kept thinking to myself, well, you know, someday I'll, I'll get married and then my porn use will stop. <laughs> um, if you think that, I love you, but you're an idiot, okay? Um, I was dating my girlfriend, my high school sweetheart, and uh, before too long, we were engaged in sexual behavior pretty much for all of high school. And I just suffered alone, kept trying, and, oh God, I feel really guilty and really bad and kind of beat myself up, and then that would last for about, oh, 72 hours. A few years into our marriage, we got married young. Uh, a few years into our marriage, I was caught still looking at pornography because magically marriage didn't fix everything. Go figure. And that sent us into a really difficult season where um, uh, thought for a minute might lose my, my marriage. And what was hard was even though I, I started trying to walk in honesty and transparency, she knew how sneaky and deceptive I could be because I was sneaking and lying all throughout high school to go have sex with her. So when I told her I was being honest, she's like, yeah, but I know you're honest and you're honest is terrible. And so it was a really rough go for a while. Um, God showed up in some big ways. Uh, some people showed up in some big ways. And by God's grace, I have been um, walking in a place of victory over those sins of pornography and sexual immorality, not perfectly by any stretch of the imagination, but God has shown me grace in that area. I know other men and other women who have been shown grace in that area. And some of you are here today and you are deeply entrenched in some sort of sexual sin and you're fearful and you're terrified. You think if I speak this to anyone, if I let my wife know, if I let my friends know, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna burst into flame and die and, and, and I don't know if there's any hope for me. It's gone on for so long. It's so deeply entrenched. And friends, I want to let you know about the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the truth is this, that if God 
could save a sinner like me, if God could save a sinner, a, a woman like Rahab in the Old Testament who made her living as a prostitute and she was adopted into the people of God and actually became an ancestor, a great, 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 great grandmother, not only of King David, but of Jesus Christ himself, then guess what? There's hope for you. There is no one who is too far gone. There is no one who is too deeply entrenched in any type of sexual immorality or any type of sin, period, that the grace of God cannot reach you and find you. That's the hope of the gospel. If you look in, in chapter 13, verse 4, it says, God will judge the sexually immoral. And I actually say there's great hope in that verse. And you think to me, that does not sound like a hope-filled verse. What are you on, Pastor Aaron? And I say, no, listen to me. God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous, but if you're a Christian, then that's not who you are anymore, amen? You, if you are a Christian, your identity is a beloved son or a beloved daughter of the Father brought into the kingdom of God by the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and that's not your identity anymore. That's not who you are. That's not how God views you. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, he's, he's talking about, don't you know, this, this list of people that will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he talks about those uh, who, are, who are adulterers and those who are sexually immoral. But in verse 11, he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you are a Christian, your identity is not in your brokenness or your sexual sin. Your identity is a a forgiven saint. God changes your fundamental identity. That is good news. So when the author of Hebrews says, God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous, your response should be, thank God, that's who I used to be, but praise God, I am in Christ, and now God looks at me with all the love and affection and tenderness and devotion that he has for his one and only son, Jesus. But wait, there's even more because God's grace is not just a uh, forgiving grace. God's grace is a transforming grace where he changes our desires. It's not an outside in, start acting good and one day you'll feel good. No, God actually works from the inside out to, to turn our desires from those disordered desires I spoke of earlier to, to more uh, desires that are more in line with God's will. He's a, he's a transforming God. And that the more you understand his forgiving grace, the more it becomes transforming grace in your life. Titus chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, the grace of God has appeared. Yes, bringing salvation for all people, that's that forgiving grace, but also training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Friends, how many of you are thankful that you're not the person you once were because of God's grace? Isn't that a good thing? It's not just forgiving grace, it's transformative grace. There's an author, Heath Lambert, he's a, a biblical counselor and an author, and he wrote a book called Finally Free that deals with the subject of, of walking free from the, the sin of pornography use. Um, I also linked to that book up on the website, would highly, highly, highly recommend it to you. It is my absolute favorite book on the subject. Keith Lambert, he writes this. He says, God works in us so that we desire him. There's those desires. We desire him and we work for his good purpose. As Christians, we are able to do the work of obedience, but all of our growth is empowered by God's grace. Isn't that good? Jesus gives us power to obey so that we can obey to the glory of God. And believers are called to lean on his strength, lay hold of practical means of grace, and take practical steps toward 
change. No matter what has happened or what has transpired in your life, I want to tell you confidently and boldly, not on my own authority, but on the authority of the word of God, that there is grace for you. There's grace for you. Let me close with a couple of brief thoughts here. First of all, for those of you who are currently today stuck in a place of sexual sin, you're feeling convicted by the words that I'm sharing, I want to plead with you, do not let one more day go by before you confess and repent and experience God's grace and forgiveness. It's like you're, you're carrying a, a backpack with 300 pounds of rocks in it. And the invitation today from Jesus is lay your burden down. Is it going to be difficult? Yeah. Is it going to cause some waves? Absolutely. Is it worth it? Yeah, it is. Find a friend, find a pastor, find someone who's trusted that you can be clean with, you can be open with, you can be transparent with. And by God's grace, start to experience his forgiving and his transforming grace. For those of you who are not, maybe, maybe sexual sin, adultery, immorality, maybe this isn't something that you, you struggle with. I, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to guard against pride. Don't look down on other people just because your sin is a different flavor than theirs. And in particular, I'm, I'm, I'm pleading with you to seek to learn empathy, compassion, grace, so that you could be a safe person for someone to open up to and say, yeah, here's my struggles, here's my sin, here's my temptations. And that you could actually be someone who ministers God's grace to them. Can you do that for me? Some of you are unmarried. And you think about that command to honor marriage and to keep the marriage bed undefiled. Uh, by the way, this is a side note, but it's, I think it's an important side note. I don't even really like the use of the word single anymore. Uh, I'm trying to cut that out of my vocabulary because single like implies alone and not enough and inadequate. You know, the darn Beatles and one is the loneliest number and all that kind of stuff. Like, uh, you are unmarried. But in Christ, you are not single as though you were some incomplete human being. You have everything you need in Christ Jesus. You are not an, you are not an inadequate or, or some sort of a half-citizen. I know especially in church, there's a lot of married people, a lot of families. We need to be careful how we treat our unmarried friends, like even unintentionally. Married people, you do not need another human being to complete you. Do not believe the lie of Hollywood, you know, the you complete me. You know, like as though you're incomplete on your own. No, if you have Christ Jesus, you have everything that you need for life and for godliness. If God brings a spouse your way, praise God. That's a good gift from the Lord. But the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, I wish that you all could live like I do, single and unattached, because I can do great things for the kingdom. You can practice the Christian virtue of, of chastity while still honoring and celebrating and championing the good gift of marriage, even if that's not a gift that God has given to you. Unmarried, not single, unmarried. <laughs> and lastly, for those of you who are not Christians, I want you to just realize and consider that you've settled for something far less than what Jesus actually has for you. Again, C.S. Lewis uses this analogy of we've settled for making mud pies in the slums instead of a weekend at the beach. You might think that you've got it going on. You think that, the pleasures you're experiencing right now are, are good and, and you're fine. 
but I just want you to consider, is there something even greater? Not only do I believe that the, the, the truths of the gospel are true and they're for you, but I, I just want you to consider this. Statistically speaking, every time they do a survey about the people who have the most joyful, free, fulfilling, and frequent sex is married, Bible-believing Christians who attend church regularly. Just something to consider. Just lay that before you. For those of you who are married, go be fruitful and multiply. That's the command this week. All right, let's do this. Let's conclude our time and call, call to response. There's a way to respond for everyone here. I think I, I, think I hit everybody here this, today, and if I didn't, come back next week and we'll talk about money. So we're going to start our time of response with giving of our finances, and the financial stewards will start to collect the offering, and we don't give out of obligation or guilt. We give out of joyful love and joyful response to the God who gave us his very best in Jesus Christ. And so I encourage you, Sound City, would you give generously? Would you give freely uh, as an act of worship to God? While they're collecting the offering, we welcome our younger students class in to join us for our time of singing in response. And while we're, we're collecting the offering and they're getting seated, let me read through some discussion questions and some things that will help us this week in our homes and our community groups. Number one is this. Why is sex such a sensitive and even taboo topic for many in the church? How can we help one another grow in openness, honesty, and transparency? And how can we work toward an environment of trust, safety, and grace? Number two, how is marriage and yes, sex a signpost that points to the gospel? And how do these joys point us to the even greater joy of Christ's relationship with the church? I'm sorry, yeah, the church's relationship with Jesus. Number three, discuss various reasons why our culture has become so obsessed with sex. In what ways have we bought into culture's narrative regarding sex instead of what God's word says? And then number four, I want to give you an action item Consider this week having your community group meet separately as men and women and have a time of discussion regarding these topics. Make space for honesty and confession and make plans to help one another walk forward in God's grace. And then some things to pray about because we desire to be a praying church. This is a value to us. Pray that we as a church would be so inspired and motivated by the gospel that we would joyfully honor marriage and consistently run from sexual immorality. And number two, pray for those who have experienced hurts and wounds from sexual sin, both their own and others, and pray that God would show them his grace, healing, and redemption. The servers are going to begin passing out the elements for communion. This is for Christians. If you're a Christian, you're welcome to join with us in a celebration of the Lord's table. I'm going to read this passage from 1 Corinthians 11 that sets up what we're doing, but let me just let you know. First of all, will you hold on to those for a moment? We'll take this together. Secondly, as the band comes and begins to lead us in a time of singing, I want to invite you, maybe you need to just sit for a moment and reflect. We're going to sing songs that speak of the mercy of God. We're going to sing songs that speak of his forgiving grace in our lives. So maybe don't jump to your feet immediately and just start singing. Maybe you need to sit. Maybe you need to repent. Maybe you need to meditate of what's going on in your heart, what's going on in your life in these areas. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 11. And then we'll begin our time of response. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Friends, it's for you. It's for your own sin. Sins that you've committed. 
Jesus' body was broken. He says, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Now listen, friends. There is no one who comes to this worship gathering worthy on their own. Right? Nobody's coming in here today perfect saying, oh, good thing I haven't done any sinning this week. Looks like I can take communion. No. The unworthy manner that the Apostle Paul is speaking of here is unconfessed sin, unrepented of sin, sin that is held onto and said, no, I would like to enjoy this for a little while more, thank you. Then there's a warning there. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let me do this. Let me pray. And I'll invite you to respond however God leads you and however God prompts you to respond through communion, through prayer, and then yes, through singing. God, I thank you for this time. God, it's, your, your word is at times cutting. Like we read in Hebrews chapters ago that your word is like a two-edged sword that cuts right down to the heart of things. But God, we know that you would not cut us if it were not for your plan and your desire to heal us like a surgeon. So God, I pray today for those of us who are feeling a little cut, would you help us not to recoil, to pull back? Would you help us to press in to experience the grace that has been given to us because of what Jesus did on the cross, that though our sins deserve great punishment, Jesus took that, and what's left for us now is forgiveness and transformation. God, I pray for this time of singing. Would you fill our lips with your praises as we sing songs of of a prayer of have mercy on us? God, would you let that come genuinely from our hearts? And may we respond to your love and respond to your grace and experience the great joy.